Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 138, Reflections on 21st Century Dharma. In this episode, we join together with some of the folks from the Interdependence Project to have a roundtable discussion on 21st Century Dharma from a young practitioner's perspective. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. You're tuned in to the Buddhist Geeks versus Interdependence Project Showdown. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, we're here on the line with um, Ethan Nickturn and Julia May Jonas. So if you guys could introduce yourself, let's kick it off that way. Uh, I'm Julia. And I'm Ethan. And we're representing the uh, Interdependence Project, which we're centered mostly in New York, though we have uh, a group in Portland, Oregon, and starting one up in uh, Austin, Texas. And Julia is one of our head bloggers on the One City blog, and I'm the founding director of the ID project or IDP as we like to call it. And, uh, I also write for the one city blog. Yeah. And we're really happy to be here with, uh, Vince and Ryan from Buddhist geeks. Yep. This is Vince. You heard me just a second ago. I'm one of the founders of Buddhist geeks and now the primary Buddhist geek. This and, is Ryan. Uh, here's Ryan. I used to be a Buddhist geek and now I pretend to be one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should, you should mention your new blog. Though. Oh yeah. I have a new blog called, uh, my Samadhi is hot. <laughs> it's at nice. hotsamadi.com. That's good. That's going to rival my new blog called Buddha Call. Dang. Oh. We shall meet in the internet. Can we produce the uh, t-shirts? Is that possible? Oh, actually, I do want a t-shirt for real. So, uh, yeah. And then, Ethan, you thought it would be a good idea to talk a little bit about our background as Buddhist practitioners, like what got us into the Dharma and I uh, thought that'd be a neat way to kick this off. And then we were going to talk about kind of where we see Dharma in the West going. And I guess we, the four of us kind of have a unique perspective because we're all, are we all 30 or under? I'm 31, so I'm the old man. You're the old man. Well, Ryan's 30. Yeah. So, and how old are you, Julia? I'm 28. 28. So I'm the young dude at 26. So yeah, so we're around, hey. the, wow. yep, so around the same <laughs> age range here. So we thought we'd have something unique to offer in terms of perspectives on where we see the dharma going and we may i'm guessing we would get a lot wrong but we thought it'd be a cool conversation anyway <laughs> so do, do you guys want to kick it off and talk a little bit about your backgrounds sure i mean i'm a, a teacher and and a practitioner in the shambhala tradition mostly although i've also studied insight and theravadan and uh, some soto zen uh, buddhism but i grew up with buddhist parents both of my parents were early students of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, founder of the Shambhala tradition. And uh, my dad, David Nickturn, is a meditation teacher himself. And my mom is an artist turned uh, Buddhist therapist. So um, it's definitely kind of in my blood. But I definitely had a tumultuous experience with uh, not wanting to identify as Buddhist in my early teenage years, but uh, got into meditation practice on my own when I was uh, about 17 did a lot of kind of independent study of it, teenage years and college years, and then went further with it after college and have been teaching for about the last seven years. Two main things that really interest me, at least when I started teaching, one was 
how accessible I thought it was to our generation, Generation X, Generation Y. And for whatever reason, in the communities that I was participating in, there was really not a lot of young practitioners. So I really wanted to sort of work with that and do something about that. And the other thing is really focusing on what I like to call applied dharma. You know, at the ID Project, we have an integral activism program and we have an arts program and a blog and podcast. So I'm really interested in how we apply all this stuff to our life in the world. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But I'm definitely, am I the only Dharma brat of the four of us, meaning grew up in a Buddhist family? Yep, I think so. Yep. Wow. Yeah, I think so. Julia, what's your, how'd you get into this stuff? Well, I'm a fairly nascent practitioner. I mean, I've been practicing for about three-ish years. I feel like a majority of people at Buddhist centers I came because I was having a string of crappy relationships <laughs> and um, I felt like I wanted to find something more and wanted to be wanted to find a sense of my own personal spirituality and I was raised very Christian not evangelically or anything like that but in a firmly Christian household but I was always very atheist essentially I got into it because I started Someone gave me a Bob Thurman book. I thought, oh, no self. That's so interesting. I totally relate to that. And then I started listening to more podcasts. Um, I started listening to the ID Project podcast. I started going to ID Project. Through that, I started going to Shambhala. I've done some training with Shambhala. And and now kind of very into insight and Theravadan Buddhism. So I'm firm in my commitment, but very loose in kind of the ways that I'm choosing to receive the teachings right now. And I'm, I'm not like fully committed to any one school or the other. So that's my kind of my experience. Oh, you guys. Yeah. Let's, let's let all the uh, elders go first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ryan, Ryan, if you want to. We're back in my day. We didn't even have Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I got into practicing back way back in the day when I was an undergrad. And um, I wasn't actually raised Christian or anything. I mean, I kind of had a slight tendency to be atheist, but I don't think I was angry enough because I wasn't really brought up with it to kind of push back too hard on it. But I kind of had a big hole there. I never had really religion or any sort of spiritual thing be a part of my life growing up. And I sort of just happened to find my way to books. The book that really kind of put me over the edge was um, the Dalai Lama's Art of Happiness. So it was really interesting to hear those things talked about in the Western context and things that I hadn't heard of ways of looking at my life. And I think it's kind of for a lot of people, I've read this in many traditions when they talk about how people find the path is that this feeling that there's something more that suffering leads us to look into contemplative practices. And that that was kind of the phase of my life that I was going, going through is just a lot of suffering and wanting to find some answers and, or something beyond that. And, just kind of found my way to practice in Tibetan Buddhism and then it was all over and I was going to retreat centers and having a good old time practicing. (laughs) Nice. I'm hearing similar themes from everyone as my own background. Got into Buddhism through the back door sort of in that I was starting to have some weird experiences as a freshman in college and just didn't really know how to make sense of them and I was thinking everything I'm surrounded by is not really giving me a proper framework for some of these weird experiences. So I found my way to a college group and I'm so glad it was there called the self-knowledge symposium. 
there are three self-knowledge groups in the Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina. So at Duke, NC State, and Chapel Hill, there were these self-knowledge groups. And they were started by students of this enigmatic West Virginian dude named Richard Rose, who was kind of self-enlightened back in the like, 40s or something. And he was just a strange character, and he talked really openly about enlightenment and said, yep, it's totally possible. But he didn't really give any specific ways of how to do it. He was kind of like, you kind of just fall into it. So a couple of my friends were doing Vipassana courses, going on like Goenka courses, going to the Insight Meditation Society. And as I watched them do this really hardcore, specific practice on, on getting enlightened, I started to think, oh, this is a method that will get me to where I'm trying to go. As a result, I got into the insight tradition, did my first retreat several years ago, and, and kind of it stuck. And uh, yeah, I've been really influenced by all the insight teachers, Joseph Goldstein, uh, Jack Kornfield's my, I'd say my current teacher, and was also influenced by this kind of rogue Theravada guy named Daniel Ingram, who I've interviewed a couple times on our Buddhist Geeks podcast. And he's rogue in the sense that he's really, really upfront about what he thinks is possible in the path. And he talks about hardcore stages and states. And he's kind of cranky. He's kind of, he's, my wife says he has kind of like an angry wisdom. <laughs> and I think that's true. And so he's really influenced me as well. So It's interesting. Um, Ethan put up a post on our blog about who's your favorite meditation teacher. It was really interesting. A good number of people said Daniel Ingram. Yeah, we've gotten about 40 comments. On comments. Really? Yeah. Wow. I'd say actually, the, yeah, the most, the most popular were... Well, the kind of the obvious ones, Pema Chodron, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sakyong Mi Paramahamsa came up a lot. Gil Franz still came mm. up a lot. Mm. Daniel Ingram came up a lot. Yeah, those were the big ones, weren't they? Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder, do you think part of that's just to do with him being kind of more of a younger Gen X voice? I think it does have something to do with that. I think he's so, he has such a great, incisively analytical mind with the way that he treats the Dharma. And I think he recognizes that people kind of want that kind of heavy-hitting analysis and kind of breakdown. I don't know if that's something that our generation wants or that uh, there was just a hole for. So I think, he, I think he definitely revs people up who kind of feel like, oh, yeah, this is really starting to explain my experience or this is really giving me some motivation towards my experience, I think. Mm. I guess we're starting to get into the next topic, which is some of the trends we've noticed in Buddhism here in the West. And I thought it'd be cool to hear what you guys had to say first, because you guys are really actively participating in, in building and sustaining an, a local community in New York City, which is, seems like you'd have a great cross-section of the whole movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ID Project is really growing, and especially this past year, it's grown a lot. I mean, we're, we're still very new. We've only been, in September, we'll have been a nonprofit organization for two years, so... People remind me that I'm always a little impatient. I want us to be more settled than we are and, and more influential than, than we are in terms of reaching people and helping people. But um, we've really grown a lot. And, you know, I think one of the insights I've had is exactly what Julia just said, that people really, there's a reason that the books that include the word hardcore, Brad Warner's book, Hardcore Zen, and Daniel Ingram's book, do well and take off. And I think it is that people really want serious practice. When I was uh, first started teaching, I thought to make things very accessible, uh, everything had to be, you know, very sort of casual. And I think 
accessible on a cultural level is actually something very different than what people are looking for in practice. And I think people, I think one of the reasons your podcast does so well and is so great is because you have very serious conversations about this stuff. You don't sort of try to water everything down. It's, it, there's, so there's sort of a respecting of the intelligence and the discipline of students and the audience that I think uh, this past year we've had more and more rather than just having drop-in classes, class series at the ID Project and really telling people that they needed to go on meditation retreats and whatever tradition was moving them. The interesting thing is when you ask people to commit to be students and to be community members and say you're not really going to get as much out of it unless you really are serious about your practice, people really step up. So people are really looking for that. At the same time, I think making Buddhism culturally relevant in the 21st century is an uh, ethically relevant is a is another conversation. But I think the idea of Buddhist geeks of, of being like really serious about studying and talking about Buddhism is exactly what people are looking for. There's a lot of sort of quasi-Buddhist stuff out there. And from a certain point of view, I think it's great because the more you can spread mindfulness into society, Eckhart Tolle or something like that. But when it comes down to it, that the serious practice, I think, is what people are looking for. So that's something that I'm finding more and more. And people, if you treat people like adults, they kind of respond, you know. I don't know if you guys are finding a similar thing. or No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I actually, I love what you're saying. And I'm, I'm wishing I were in New York City to, to kind of witness the experiment that's the ID project, because I think it's just great. And how old are people that are in your community? Are they like same age as you guys or... How does it skew? It's a, it's a range. We're just doing another survey now. We did our first survey right at the beginning, and the average age of a practitioner at the ID Project is about 34. That's the mean. Wow. Uh, I live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and that, that would be old for Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But in the Buddhist community, I think when my book was written about in the Shambhala Sun, it mentioned something like the average age of a Buddhist community is 48 or older. Yeah. Uh, times over 50. So... Yeah, it's definitely young for the Buddhist world, but I would say our kind of core group is 25 to 45. In marketing terms, not super young, but in Buddhist terms, definitely somewhat younger than some of our other Buddhist communities. Do you find there's like a, because I'm sure both of you have experience in the, well, my wife calls them the gray-haired Buddhist communities, um, which is both a criticism in a way and also a nod because those are the people kind of holding the wisdom. But have you guys noticed a like a cultural difference in your community than, than say, in a traditional Buddhist community that skews higher? I'm, I'm interested, like, what's it like coming in to, like, do a retreat or a workshop with you guys? Like, is it, is it a different feel there? Yeah, I would say it's a definitely different feel. I think, by nature, young people are more social with each other. I mean, I don't think that you can necessarily say it's because of the type of people that we are. I'm sure back in Chogun Trumpa Rinpoche's heyday, everyone was very social with each other. Um, <laughs> That's what we hear. <laughs> very, very intimately social. Um, so I think there's that element that comes out of it, that more people are likely to uh, become kind of enmeshed with each other in friendly ways outside of the um, center. I feel like when you have an older kind of group, it's like you come to the center, you do your thing you maybe endure pleasantries at the end and then everyone kind of goes back to their lives because they have them with kids and stuff like that. And there's less of that. There's more being able to just hang out and there's definitely a more, I mean, I, I would say there's 
certainly more of a tendency, and this can skew both good and bad, to um, be culturally relevant and to constantly reflect on the experience along with pop culture or current politics or, you know, zeitgeist. Yeah. And I think that can be good. And I think it can also sometimes it's distracting from the practice, obviously. Right. It's kind of like a love-hate relationship, right? Yeah. I mean, I normally, I think it's, well, it's so interesting. I feel like anytime you go to a Dharma talk and it just depends on the day and what your day was like and how you feel that day, sometimes you're going to be like, what? Why aren't we talking about just straight practice? This is all so content-oriented. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes... Mm-hmm. You can have a totally different day, go to the practice and be like, oh, where's the specifics to apply to my life? Mm-hmm. Um, so we are impermanent creatures <laughs> and sometimes that's good and sometimes it feels less good. Yeah. What do you what do you guys think of that? I mean, I have a tremendous love for the so-called gray haired community because it's kind of my family in mm-hmm. a way. But what do you guys what, what do you guys think of generational dynamics? Well, I'll just jump in. I mean, I. I have a a strange relationship to it because on the one hand, I try to go to local communities. Like I've been to the local insight meditation community here and I've just, it just doesn't click when I go there. Like the, it's not that the teachers aren't great, just the teaching style, the people there, it just doesn't fit or feel relevant to where I am. So I end up kind of feeling uh, like that's just not my scene. And I'd like to have a scene. I'd like to have a, a community of close practitioners locally. But then on the other hand, all these amazing teachers have come out of that whole generation and they're like basically help build Buddhism in the West. So I, I'm always kind of bowing to those people and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for creating these centers and for doing hardcore practice in Asia and for doing hardcore practice in general and, and for really like creating the infrastructure for me to be able to follow in your footsteps. And then lately I've just been feeling like, well, I guess we have to do it ourselves. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the was the impetus behind Buddhist geeks. We need to start creating community or, or having the kinds of conversations we want to be hearing, since n- not many other people are having them. And I guess right. probably the same impetus with the ID project. Like, okay, let's do this. I don't know yeah. for Ryan if it's the same, but yeah, similarly, you know, a lot of gratitude for the teachers, you know, and all that they've done in bringing the Dharma here and getting it going and having places to do retreats. I guess I'm a little weird because I don't really, I mean, I'm part of a community. Like I have a teacher and, and there's a community around that, but I don't really participate in any formal community. Like I feel that like the Buddhist geeks community, like the people who are part of the IDP project, you know, and like, like I feel like I get everything I need in terms of a Sangha from the people around Boulder that I hang out with. And they're all from different traditions. I'm not necessarily saying that's a good thing, but that's what I just realized. I had a friend come to Boulder and he's like, Oh, what are some of the communities around here? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like I've been, I've been living in Boulder for how many years, but like, I seriously don't know. And, and I told him that the same thing that's like, well, I think you're going to find a lot of value in just meeting fellow practitioners because that's what's been valuable to me. And so I don't know if that's just a generational thing or, or maybe just my not finding what I want or need in, in the established geographical communities, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think generally community participating politically and learning a little bit more just mm-hmm. also because I'm the administrative head of the ID project of right. like what actually builds community, yeah. you know, which is really kind of the a core and in participating and in, in helping out with the Shambhala community, thinking about, you know, what really helps build community. It's, 
it's tough. I mean, yeah. we don't have in America right now, we do not, we have a consumer culture. We do not have a community culture and it's uh, hard to figure out how, what does actually bring people together other than malls. Yeah, know? no, it's tough. I had, I was a residence hall director for a number of years and that's always the goal every year is like, how do I turn a residence hall of like 300 students into a community when they don't want to be part of a community (laughs) and you do more than get pizza, right? It's like, Oh, pizza and you know, a television or something. That's what gets people together. But it was like a never ending battle. (laughs) So I'm interested because you guys are doing, I mean, you guys are really a big force in the Buddhist online world and we're sort of trying to do this hybrid thing where we're both live communities and having online outlets through the blog and podcast. I'm just wondering what is the manifestation for you guys of an online community? Is it just people getting together and knowing about Buddhist geeks and hanging out together? Is it, how does the community kind of manifest to you? Yeah. I mean, this is a good question. One I've been thinking about a lot because most of what we've done up to this point has just been deliver interviews in a podcast form. So it's been really top down in that sense. I think there's a limitation to that medium where there can't be a lot of bottom up community activity. I mean, I think it can stimulate thought and dialogue, but it's not the best for building community. So I've been thinking if I had more time and I think this could happen, I would prefer to start doing a hybrid like you guys are where there's both in-person and kind of digital aspects of a community. I think almost have to do both of those, at least at this point. And maybe when virtual reality becomes feasible, mm-hmm. we could go completely <laughs> virtual. But right now, it's like, I don't think you can avoid the uh, potency and the power of in-person interaction. For me, I, I do feel like sometimes I love it and sometimes I hate being part of a community. Mm. It does keep me on my practice much more firmly than I would be if I didn't have it, if I didn't have people that I wanted to show up for even when I don't want to show up or to continue to think about even just writing for the blog. I have to continue to kind of keep practice a super relevant part of my life when I feel like doing something else, maybe. And so I think having that community is is really good. And also people in the Sangha are really great teachers. You watch as your opinion of them at first they're awesome, then they become terrible, then they become okay again, then they become awesome again in your mind and you just kind of watch it. Like, wow, I totally like couldn't stand whenever you would raise your hand before, but now I kind of look forward to it. Interesting. And it's a really, it's a really good teacher. That's cool. Yeah. Well, I think it would be interesting to discuss how Buddhism in itself is a trend right now. In, in the outside world and in general, mindfulness is a much more well-known term than it ever was. And I think more and more people, I believe there was some study that said one in 10 people meditate or, or something like that, to, or claim to meditate, <laughs> or view their running as their meditation or something. But that there's just like this kind of greater shift in the U.S. definitely toward mindfulness and toward being accepting about Buddhism and, and being interested and and going forward. And I don't know, I just think that's an interesting. Yeah, that is, that is interesting. I mean, while you're speaking about that, I kind of two thoughts came in, into my head and competed for uh, brain power. One was uh, <laughs> that what you're describing is kind of like this secularization of Buddhism that's becoming really popular. It's almost like Buddhism that's a little bit stripped of some of the Asian culture. 
seems mm-hmm. to be the most powerful. And then the other thought is that Buddhism's core is kind of contracting in a way as boomers get older because they were the kind of the main people that, that brought it in that actually, you know, like you said, the average age in Buddhist centers, Western centers tends to trend towards 50. So it's like yeah. in one sense, the, the core is contracting in the next couple of decades, but on the other hand, it's becoming more popular. Yeah. Strange. Yeah. Some of the, the bigger trends I notice, especially, you know, I hang out in, I guess, the more cosmopolitan cities. So although I did get to teach a meditation workshop last, last year with my father in Memphis, which I thought nobody was going to show up to, and over 100 people came over the course of the weekend. So I do think that what Julia is saying is it's, it's very popular. I do think one thing that I've noticed is that there's a ton of respect for people who meditate. It's not like you're going to be called weird per se, it's like, oh, it's so great that you meditate. But a lot of times the next thought is, I wish I could meditate. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. You know? So there's like this, this feeling that meditation is something other than what it is, usually a emptying out of the mind or like having a, some kind of pure mind rather than just looking at it as practicing mindfulness and beginning to attend to your mental and emotional experience moment by moment. So I think that's something that really has to change is while the idea of it has gotten very popular, the accessibility of it as something that people can incorporate into their life is not quite there yet. And that's something that my teacher, Saka Mipam Rinpoche, talks about a fair amount as well. And then I think, you know, another thing is in terms of the Kalyanamitra level of, you know, spiritual friend or having a mentor, having somebody you check in with who's classes or workshops or retreats one attends and who you get to have some face time with, it's hard to find somebody. And I think that's something that a lot of people are sort of looking at. It's like, I'm very interested in Buddhism, but Pema Chodron's my teacher. And the closest I've ever got to her is reading her book or going to a workshop that 600 people were at. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're at a point where, you know, a lot lot of uh, myself and other people, I think we get the sort of FaceTime of having somebody to check in with working with a lot of times we work with therapists who are somewhat skilled in mindfulness or, or Buddhism rather than working with a Buddhist teacher. And I think there's various reasons for that. One is I think haven't quite figured out a sustainable livelihood model for Buddhist teachers in the West. So I think we are at this kind of interesting time where there's more and more interest in that. You mentioned Daniel Ingram, and I really loved his book. We, we studied it in our Hardcore Dharma series. But I also have a question about, like, how does somebody study with him? You know, like, yeah. what, is that, what is that process? Or, you know, does he meet with people once a month? Or, like, what does it mean to be a student of Daniel Ingram's? Um, you know, it's something that comes up in the Shambhala community a lot, too. There's amazing teachers in the Shambhala community, but it's very hard to actually be in their presence on a regular basis for various reasons. It's not sort of how the path is constructed. And so I think that's one thing we really have to look at is how can people step up and actually be accessible, not as gurus, but more as in sort of mentor, almost life guide, or to use a what is sometimes a fairly icky term, like life coaching, that we do need people who are talking to like, how's stuff going with your wife? That's part of your practice. Talk to me about it. So sometimes I think actually what might, where we might be headed with Buddhist teaching is that the realms of therapy and the realm of teaching Dharma, and I think this is already happening with especially a lot of teachers in the insight community, might begin to meld more and more because I think they have pieces of 
the same puzzle of different pieces of the same puzzle about how a person really works with their mind. But I do think it's uh, one of the reasons that this sort of contraction in actual hardcore Dharma students is happening with the aging of the of the baby boomers is is because it's hard to actually study with a teacher, even if you go to try to do it. And I think we need to provide more and more access to that. But I think it's coming. I think, you know, there's some great young teachers in the Shambhala tradition. The, the youngest Acharya or master teacher is my friend and mentor, Adam LaBelle. And he just finished up his uh, PhD work at Harvard Divinity School. And, and I, there's definitely some younger generation teachers who are really going to Noah Levine, you know, who are going to be powerful presences. I would say that, you know, there could be a hundred ID projects right now, or a hundred, not ID projects, not that we need to brand it, but there could be a hundred centers like ID project if there were a hundred teachers under the age of 40 who had seven to 10 years of, of teaching experience already. But there's just a dearth of that. And so it limits how much we can actually help people on a sort of in-person basis. So that's one thing I think about a lot. Mick ID project. <laughs> you can franchise it out. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And while you were talking, I was thinking about why is it that Dharma teachers are not so accessible? And I, I think part of it is what you're saying. They have a hard time making a livelihood, so they have to really reach a lot more people in order to take care of themselves. Right, right. It's like coming, kind of like a supply and demand issue in in, in a way, and uh, how it would be really cool if there were some way to support Dharma teachers. I mean, my thought would be a salary, you know, and then they have a certain amount of time that's just open to be in teacher student relationships instead of having to only teach where they can get their money or or just do therapy so that they can support teaching retreats, and then right. not having any time left over for more like kind of one on one personal yeah. contact with students. We are at an odd place where we talk so much in Buddhist communities, every Buddhist community I've ever been in with, well, with a few exceptions, but especially in the Shambhala tradition, we talk so much about the importance of connecting with teachers. And then there's that next step of how do I do that? It's like we sort of didn't figure that part of it out so well, you know, and it's a little bit, you can, uh, in the Shambhala community and other communities connect with great teachers and they are, there are there. It's just so much on the student to almost be really persistent. Yeah, one, yeah. I, one of my teachers, Dr. Galen Ferguson, who you guys interviewed, he's totally a mentor to me. We email back and forth constantly. I try to see him a few times a year. But it's all on me to have initiated that relationship, almost to the point where I bothered him for, <laughs> for a long time before he'd like sort of take me on on that kind of level, you know? And I don't know how many people are going to be willing to do that or know that that's an option. Yeah, I, I think the most bothered and perhaps you could say sincere people will. People that are like, I really need to help with this. And they, they kind of know that. But I think that's a minority, like you're saying. It's probably like 5% of people or something. So you could say, yeah, it's, it's up to every individual to find a teacher. But then you've got to provide, like you're saying, the structure, the systems that support that. So... It'll be interesting to see, like you're saying, if we can do that, I think that will really help the entire movement of practitioners who are trying to deepen and become you know, more developed and more mature practitioners. I know that it's helped me a tremendous amount to have regular access to various teachers and to have ongoing conversations with them. I will say that 
I mean, there are lots of stories about how hard it is to get the teachings through all of Buddhist history. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily, I wonder how you would find the right balance between those two things. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. My thought now is like, and I'm going back to a book I'm reading called Free from Chris Anderson. He's a editor-in-chief at Wired. He's talking about how everything in the digital world is free. And I think that's becoming more and more true, even in the Buddhist world. Like teachings are available now, Dharma talks, conversations, even online audio courses. I saw Audio Dharma, Gil Fransdale, who you mentioned, is offering free online courses. But then that stuff is free. But then because it's digital, you can make copies of it and anyone can get access to it. But because the one-on-one interaction with the teacher is always going to be more limited. So my sense is now like teachers should charge for that in some way. Like Mm -hmm. it's worth value just like seeing a therapist is. I mean, I don't know that teachers could charge a hundred (laughs) dollars an hour. That would be sustainable, but for them it would be sustainable. I don't know if that'd be sustainable for young students. Maybe they could have sliding scale models or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can always do a sliding scale model for anything, but I think, I think one of the things where, that I'm really looking at, especially when you have to run a nonprofit. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who was had just graduated from college, and he was saying he realized he had been living in this total bubble while he was in college, where his parents were paying for most things, and then you do have sort of every and everything's free attitude. You know, your meals are like on this swipe card, and and then you get out and you realize, oh, it actually takes money to live life, and I do think that there's an attitude of freeness, you know, that I, I always push back somewhat. I mean, we try to make everything we offer as accessible as possible at the ID project, as long as we can still build as a organization. But yeah. if, if making things free actually made them available to the widest uh, amount of people, I think that would be great. I think in practice, it actually doesn't because the communities and the teachings can't really support support themselves. So I like the idea of that you make it accessible to everyone, but people have to know, you know, either do work study or volunteer and know they're, they're getting something of, of value. And I mean, when we talk about the Donna or generosity cultures that these teachings flourished in, these were cultures where it was so ingrained that you just give a huge portion of your income to the monastery or to the Dharma teachers each year that it was free when you showed up because you'd already given about 10% of whatever you made that year. Mm-hmm. To the organization, that's Donna. It is the, the notion that you know everything should be free. Life is not free, you know, and, and <laughs> there's no part of life that's free. It, it takes, and there's something very honest about capitalism at the same time that has huge problems. In that, there's a, a way of measuring how much energy you've put in and are getting out of the of the system. And I do think we sort of forgot to build the livelihood model of Buddhist teachers over the last generation. And now it's tough because it's hard to find a teacher and people kind of back off of that. And then it becomes this weird thing where people are like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to charge for being a teacher. So I do something like, you know, work as an investment banker. I can teach part-time. It's like, well, that's a really strange notion of dividing one's time into what's valuable and what's not valuable. And I do think there's a lot of issues there, but yeah. uh, accessible to everyone, I'm all for. Free, I think, actually does not equal accessible to everyone. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the, dis- that's the distinction there with the book I was mentioning, that the only thing you can make free, really, is digital 
things. You yeah. can't really make physical in-person things, things right. that involve humans, time and energy that involve atoms, so to speak, the physical world. You, it's not uh, unlimited like in the digital world where bandwidth is extremely cheap. And, you know, we can make our podcast free. And yet, in order to be an organization and to build and grow and do new things, we absolutely need resources and support. And like the interview we did with you like a couple of years ago, Ethan, the title of it was, Does Priceless Mean It's Free? Right, right, uh, right, right. And I think, yeah, some things definitely can't be free. Otherwise, like you're saying, it will make the organization go extinct or really limit its ability to even provide value in the world. Yeah. It's a strange uh, tension. But we do live, you know, I think the reason we're so wary is because stuff is meant to be kind of transcendent knowledge. And we do live in this consumer culture where everything has been turned into a commodity. So we're kind of wary. We mm-hmm. want to hold this to a higher standard. What we end up kind of doing somehow is in holding it to a higher standard, we make it harder for it to exist. And I think we're really starting to feel that now specifically with this generation dynamic of the contraction. I mean, I mean, some... I think things are looking pretty bright, especially in the Shambhala community and the ID project. And I know Dharma Punks is really growing fast as a community. And a lot of communities are are building. But the, there is going to be a, a tough stretch here for Buddhism in terms of Buddhist communities, unless we develop a lot of new teachers really quickly. I'm talking like the next five years, a lot of new people start teaching from a humble and exploratory place that with good sense of lineage and authorization. But I do think we have a lot of work to do. Those of us who are interested in building Dharma communities, I think it's a, it's a very powerful time because we are getting more media and more sort of cultural play, but it's also a very dangerous time because the first generation is moving towards retirement and it's not quite clear that the structure is going to be in place at the same level as it was to, to hold the teachings and keep the Dharma kind of spreading and growing. Well, it's, I will also say we have such a different mindset about how we can pursue something like Buddhism now than we did when we were talking about people in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's not that it was party line, but it was very acceptable to like, what's that phrase? Turn off, unplug, turn on, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Turn up, turn T- off. Tune in, drop out. <laughs> tune in. Tune in, turn on, drop tune out. Out. There we go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. Wow. Um, Boomers hate us all right now. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, and that is just not the way that anyone feels that they can live their life now. And probably just they can't. Probably that, that actually can't happen. So that's a very different thing when it comes to people feeling like they have the um, time to invest. And they can give up this life that they have to pursue the path to the extent that they can become teachers. It's just so different. Yeah. One thing I'm wondering is, I'm wondering if you guys have noticed the same thing, but the thing I've observed with our generation is that there seems to be a little bit less resistance to mainstream culture in some ways. Like most Buddhist practitioners I know that are in their 20s or 30s have iPhones or smartphones, or they don't seem to be as counter-cultural as the the boomers were and and yeah i mean we're obviously wary of mainstream culture and at the same time i don't get the assumption that buddhism has to be completely incompatible with it and i'm wondering have you guys noticed a similar trend and if so what's the significance of that trend i think there's 
cultural evolution in general in Buddhism toward that? I mean, you guys are obviously interviewing tons of older teachers who are Skyping with you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think when Buddhism first came, it did feel like something so different to what was actually being thought that people did have to kind of say, okay, no, I reject you world. And now that it's more established, I feel like it's seesawing uh, a little bit. That's not only singular to our community. I think the community at large is also accepting more cultural interaction, I would say. But I think also, you know, the 60s really with the very idea of counterculture kind of played into the early Buddhist history of if one wanted to pursue knowledge, pursue the mind, pursue spiritual practice, you left culture behind. I mean, you literally went forth. And I do think the 60s was kind of the last wave in human history in a way where you could actually view something as countercultural, as creating a culture that was at odds with mainstream culture, that was non-participatory in it. And I think with globalization, with the internet, with everything, there is no going forth possible. I mean, the best you can do is get away for a retreat somewhere, you know. But uh, I think that that's definitely, we kind of realize, I I think more and more as a generation, I think it's sort of a postmodern thing too, that the way out of samsara is we have to dive into our culture more. We're not going to be able to get away from it. There's there's nowhere to go unless we, unless Buddhists figure out a way to colonize Mars or or something like that. You know, there's not. We get first dibs on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I think is very interesting about our, our cultural time right now is we're just so interested in self documenting. Yeah. Like because of the internet and because <laughs> like right of, now, mean, like right now, you know, um, I'm not into that. <laughs> I am so not into that. Hey, I can't hear myself. Hold on. <laughs> Go ahead. That, you know, I just feel like that is something of a cultural bend, which I don't know. I mean, it seems a little bit at odds with the going forth mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's cool or not cool. It's just something to acknowledge. We, love to tell people about everything we're doing yeah yeah actually connected to that i had a friend uh, go on a weekend retreat recently and he was tweeting live from the retreat uh, <laughs> as he did walking meditation and i i kind of was like dude what's up with tweeting from retreat and i had mixed feelings about it like is this cool is this not cool i mean just like OMG you're saying just got stream entry <laughs> 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 That's what we're going to name this. We got to. Since, since I teach Buddhism, I'm going to go on the record and say that's decidedly not cool. I mean, if okay, not, yeah. Why? That's, that's what I would say, that if you're going to go on a retreat, I mean, that's part of practicing, actually, that period of seclusion is, obviously, if you have to do some emailing or something. But when you're doing a walking meditation, you're still, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you're still in the mindfulness practice. So, obviously, to each their own, but I would, I would advise against live blogging. yeah i mean i've had a similar experience every time i i go on retreat particularly long retreats i love to shut off the iphone and just leave it there it feels like such a great reminder of what it's like to be unplugged and i think there's actually something that's cool about unplugging for a while feels like a relief feels really good Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, 
hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.